Oh, Euodia and Syntyche. These poor ladies. They couldn't get along. They had a disagreement. It was threatening the unity of the church, threatening the mission of the church. So Paul calls them out, puts them in the letter, names them. And now they're in the Bible for all of eternity. <laughs> like they're known for that. And, and it says very clearly that their names are in the book of life. So they're, they're Christ followers. They've, they're, they're in this thing. They're in the family of God. They will be in heaven with somebody reminding them of this little moment for all of eternity. <laughs> These poor, poor ladies. And like we could say a lot about them. We don't, we don't even know what they were arguing about. We don't know what the disagreement was about. I mean, who, who knows? It could have been like they couldn't decide on what color to paint the walls in the children's ministry or they were par- fighting over a parking spot. Not that that happens like that. But there's, there's, there's absolutely no clues here as to what the disagreement was about. And man, some of the commentators have spent many pages trying to figure that out and trying to speculate and guess. And I just don't, I don't want to spend too much time here because I think what Paul says in verses 4 through 7 is going to be more helpful for us where we are today. And, and I don't want to speculate. I don't want to like try to figure out what this might have been or just like take some guesses on that. I, I, I just think like the big picture is really important here to know that Paul, throughout this letter, he has constantly come back to the importance of unity. He constantly reminds us that we're standing firm together. We're striving together. We're soldiers together. We're fighting together. We have a common mission. We have a common fight that we're in. It's a spiritual battle, and he constantly reminds us of that importance. He reminds us that we've been given unity because of Christ. Like We don't have to figure out how to be unified. We have, because of what Jesus has done, we're one body, one spirit, one faith, one baptism, one Lord Jesus Christ of all. Like He has unified us, and what Paul reminds us over and over is to preserve the unity, maintain the unity, fight for the unity, lean in, embrace the unity. And it's okay to have conflict. It really should be okay. We're, we're not like trying to uniformity. Like we're not trying to all believe exactly the same about every single thing. We want to make, make sure the major things are uh, all in agreement. And what we say around here a lot is that what we have in common is always greater than our differences. That's what unity looks like. Is remembering that what we have in common because of Jesus is greater than the different viewpoints, the different backgrounds, and all those different kinds of things so we can be unified. And Paul constantly reminds us of how important that is. And so I don't think we need to like, go into the details and try to figure out exactly what was going on here. But I do think that there's a warning and a challenge in this passage for us. And, and just those two verses. There's the, here's the warning. Don't be Euodia and Syntyche. Like, what I mean is don't be known that way. Don't, don't be known as someone who is having a hard time getting along with people. Don't be known as someone who's holding on to a grudge, who's holding on to their disagreement, who's refusing to agree in the Lord, who's refusing to move forward. Don't, don't be known that way. I mean, don't, don't be the one that, we, you know, we tell stories. If we were going to tell stories about you, like, we, don't be that one. We, don't, we wouldn't do that. But like, if we were telling stories, we wouldn't say, oh, that Charlie, boy, he's always complaining about something. He couldn't figure it out. Don't, don't be them. Don't be known this way. It's a discipline to look for the bigger picture. It's a discipline to look at the good things that are going on. It's a discipline to rejoice despite everything else going on. So don't be, like, let them at least be a warning to you. But here's the challenge in it. Paul says, 
hey, Yuri and Santiki are having a hard time agreeing in the Lord. And he says, I ask you also, true companion, help these women. He doesn't get really specific about who's supposed to help them. He just says, somebody help them. And, and that's a big part of this. That's, that's, that's a part of our responsibility. Maybe you don't have a disagreement going on right now, but you know someone that might be, or they're leaning that way, or they, they have a negative outlook, and like you get to come alongside them and, and help them. There's a challenge for every single one of us to preserve the unity, but when we see disagreements, to move alongside people and help them work those things out. True companion, help these women. Help them agree. Help them move forward. Don't let this be a threat to the church. Don't let this divide you. All those different kinds of things. There's, there's that in this passage, I think. And it's just a reminder that it's okay to have conflict in the church. It's okay for us to disagree about some things. If if you're here at Crosspoint and you haven't disagreed with someone here yet, then you just haven't been here long enough. <laughs> it, it'll happen. Like, it's just, we're all different. We're all, it's okay. It's how we handle that and how we work through that and how we help each other through that that's really, really important. And so Paul, Paul says a lot about that. We could say a lot about that. We actually did a series several years ago on dealing with conflict in the church. If you were in the middle of something like that, you need some help, you could go back and and check out that series on our website, or you could just come talk to us. We'd love to help you that because that's, that's something important. But what I think we need to do is look at these next few verses because I think that those will really help us today. Because in the next few verses, Paul turns a corner from calling out that specific incident, and he starts talking very generally, but he's, he's giving imperatives. He's giving commands. He's giving instruction. In fact, he's just rattling off a list. Four, five, and six, those verses like one command after another. Do this, do this, don't do this. And I think that what he's talking about here will really, really help us because it's almost like as he gives these commands, he's kind of giving us a formula to follow. And, and what I want to do is look at it as a recipe. It's like Paul is stirring up a recipe and he's giving us a recipe for peace. And I'm calling this a, Paul's recipe for peace because it looks like he's saying, hey, you add this, you do this, and here's the end result. Here's what, here's what we're, we're cooking up. God's going to give us peace. That verse 7, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding. So any recipe, you have ingredients, you have directions, instructions, and you have a result, the cake that comes out of the oven like the, that you enjoy. And so I want to see this just for the sake of helping us maybe grab a hold of this truth, really embrace this truth when all these commands can kind of seem overwhelming, they can kind of seem a little bit intimidating, almost impossible at times, that maybe if you look at it as a recipe, with ingredients, directions, and a result that maybe we can really, really embrace it and apply it to our lives. And so the first thing that you have in a recipe is ingredients. You got to get all the stuff. If you start following a recipe, and I don't know where you are on that. I don't know everybody's cooking skills. Some of you guys are great at cooking. You follow recipes. You, you might even have recipes and recipe books. Like maybe you're great at that. And some people are really good at DoorDash. Like I don't know where you are on this whole spectrum. But when you're following a recipe, if you realize that you don't have all the ingredients, there's, that's a panic situation. I was going to make this, and now I realize I don't have paprika. I've never bought paprika. I don't know where you find paprika. Is it near the butter? I don't know. what. Like, I, I don't know about paprika. So if I don't have a ingredient, then I can't make the recipe, and that's, that's a big problem. So Paul's not really talking about the ingredients here, but because we're looking at it from the angle of recipe, I want to talk about the ingredients, and I want to just make this one point. You have everything you need in Christ to follow him. If you are in Christ, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, and here's what he's promised, the Holy Spirit has come to live inside of you, to indwell you, to empower you, and he's given you everything you and I need as followers of Christ to live out 
these commandments. We really do have everything we need. I want you to see this in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. His, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence. We have everything we need in Christ. You have all the ingredients. No, no extra trip to the store. It's all in the pantry. It's all in the fridge. It's all every, everything you need for this recipe you already have, not because you and I are so great, because we're so resourceful that we've just stored up. No, because we have Jesus. Because we have the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He's giving us everything we need to pursue the life that he's called us to. And, and we, need to, we need to know that. In fact, you need to know it on both sides. If you are in Christ, if you put your faith and trust in Jesus, you have everything for this recipe to work. If you're not there yet, if, you, if you're here today and you haven't put your faith and trust in only Jesus yet, you're exploring Christianity, you're here checking this thing out, maybe you were invited by a friend, maybe your parents are kind of leading you in that way, and you haven't moved in that direction, you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, then this recipe, guys... It's not going to really work for you. It's not going to turn out the way it's supposed to turn out because you're not in the family of God yet. But, man, I just want you to know we're so glad you're here. We couldn't be more excited that you're here checking this thing out, exploring Christianity. And we would love to have a conversation with you about what it looks like for you to put your faith and trust in Jesus, be brought into his family because of what Jesus did, because of his death on the cross. He brought us in, made us right with God. And then these promises that we see in the scriptures are, are for us. And we would love to talk to you about that. But if you are in Christ, if you're, you know, man, I put my faith and trust in Jesus. I'm only relying on Jesus for my salvation. He's my hope for everything. This promise is for you. This, this recipe, you have everything you need. You've got all the ingredients because you have Jesus the, Jesus, the Holy Spirit. You have him living inside of you. And so those are the ingredients for this thing. And then Paul moves into the specific directions. That's what he spends his time here with these commandments, these instructions. Do this. Don't do this. And so this is how you put this cake together. This is, how you, this is how you build this recipe so that you get the result that God has promised. And the first direction that he says here is rejoice in the Lord. Verse 4, look at it. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. He says it, then he says it again to repeat it. And this is not the first time this has come up. This is the theme of this Philippian letter. He continually comes back to this need to rejoice. Paul exudes joy in everything that he's doing. And we've talked about this multiple times because of the circumstances that Paul was in. I mean, he, he's in prison. He's not free to move where he wants to move. He's chained to a guard. He's waiting to find out if he's going to be set free or if he's going to be executed. And in all that, Paul continually comes back to rejoicing. The whole threat of dying is like, it's a win-win either way for me. Like his perspective on all of this is just to rejoice. People are doing these things for the wrong reason. I'm rejoicing in that because at least they're doing the things. Like everything about this book reminds us, this letter that he writes reminds us to rejoice. And here as he starts, he starts to close out his letter and give all these commands, he's saying one more time, hey, rejoice in the Lord. Look to Jesus and rejoice. And let me say it again, just in case you've missed it all the other times. Rejoice, rejoice, rejoice. And we have, every single time we've kind of talked about this, that's come up. We've called this whole series the Summer of Joy, really challenging us to find the joy, to pursue the joy, to see things with that joyful perspective. And one of the things I don't think we've talked about maybe as much is how much our perspective influences our joy. 
Like if you, if you choose the wrong perspective, it'll always be hard to find the joy in it. But if you can change your perspective and see the bigger picture, then you'll find joy. And I, I, don't, I don't know if you guys have um, thought about this in, in such specific ways, but here's, here's the way it kind of hit me this week. This has been a brutal summer. You guys, have y'all seen that? Have you, have you felt it? Like it's been, it's been hot. And I know some of you are new to Texas, and that's great, and thank you for coming, and uh, we apologize for the heat, and all the things, right? And some of you are like, I didn't know it was going to be this bad. Like, I didn't know I couldn't touch my steering wheel when I got in my car, right? Like, it's, it's hot, and we have hot summers all the time here, but this one is it's kind of moving towards exceptional. It's really, really been hot. And because it's so hot, it's really easy to complain. Um, we... we uh, we're moving my son, Dub, and some of his friends are moving to debut this afternoon, and we're moving him into his dorm today on the surface of the sun. That's what it'll be like. So it's going to be awesome. And as you're doing that, you're just sweating and everything. It's just easy to complain. Now, you need to know this about me. I'm so old, I father weathermen on Twitter, okay? That's, that's my age bracket now. I'm on Twitter following weathermen. And one of the ones I follow the most is that Pete Delkis guy. And I don't know if you follow Pete Delkis, but he's been like showing the stats as the summer has built, as the 100-degree days have built. He continually shows these stats. And I want you to see some of these stats because I've been following them, and I'm going to share them with you. You thought you were going to be encouraged today. Here they are, okay? So, so far we've had 41 100-degree or higher days this year. 41. That's painful. That's too many. And you look down there in 2011, there's 71. Now, the 100-degree days are pretty bad, and it gets really, really hot, and you don't want to do anything. But there's also this other thing that's going on that we haven't had rain. I know some of you live out east, and you've had rain, and we're trying not to be bitter, okay? But, like, here in DFW, we haven't had rain. And so there's another image here that he shows every day about the lack of rainfall. And the last measurable rain was on June 3rd, so that's 64 days without rain. And, man, I'm praying for rain. Some of you are praying for rain. Some of you are dependent upon rain. Like, we need rain, and, like, I want the rain to come, and when rain comes, I'll rejoice. But let me tell you what happened this week. It was kind of weird because I was following this and following this, and I was, like, finding myself looking for it every day. Like, where are we at? And I realized, man, we're, we're getting kind of close to some records. And it changed my perspective because all of a sudden I wanted the record. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I, that's just me, maybe. But I, I was like, well, if we're going to have to suffer through this, let's make it a part of history, you know? I'm like, look at this. Like, in 2011, it was bad, 71 total days. But look, we're only one day off the pace. They had 42 on the same day this year. That, that year, as, as we do, we have 41. Like, we're close. I know we need rain, and I'm ready to rejoice when the rain comes. But we're 64 days without rain, and the longest is 24. That's more than 20. Man, it changed my perspective. So much so that yesterday, I was preparing for this message, and I sent Watkins these slides, and yesterday, we didn't hit 100 degrees in DFW, and I couldn't have been more disappointed. <laughs> I was like, what? I jinxed it. Of all the days, like, I, what? We got to 99. I'm like, we couldn't get one more degree to keep our streak alive? We're, we're two off the pace now, but I'm saying there's still a chance. Man, you change your perspective, and all of a sudden you can find joy in anything, can't you? That's what Paul's talking about. 
He's not talking about his circumstances changing at all. He's just talking about his perspective has changed on the circumstance. Instead of seeing a self-centered perspective, he sees a God-centered perspective about all the circumstances. Look at what all God's doing in spite of where I am. And he finds joy in that. Instead of a self-centered, me-focused, temporary perspective, he has a God-centered, eternal perspective. And that changes everything. And that where he, that's where he finds this joy. That's why he can say over and over again, I'm rejoicing, rejoicing in spite of my circumstances. Because his perspective is completely different. And when we talk about rejoicing, you guys understand we're not talking about a feeling of happiness. Paul's not commanding us to feel happy. <laughs> that doesn't work, right? You can't command people to feel some certain way. You guys married? You have, you have teenagers? Have you ever tried that? I've lost many arguments for the words, you shouldn't feel that way. <laughs> I lose those arguments real fast. Like, you can't tell people how they're supposed to feel. You know, he's not commanding us, feel happy all the time. No, he's talking about something way deeper than that. He's talking about joy. He's talking about this confidence and trust in God, knowing God's good to us, knowing God loves us, knowing that we can trust God. He's talking about that when he talks about rejoicing. It's a pursuit. It's a discipline. It's a, it's a deliberately meditating on the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us so that it invades all of our life and gives us this deep-seated confidence that God's in control. That's what this rejoicing looks like. Dennis E. Johnson's a commentator we've referred to many times throughout the series, and he said it this way, to rejoice in the Lord is to resist the instinct to focus on visible pleasures and problems. It's to concentrate instead our minds deliberately on treasuring the Lord Jesus Christ, to focus thought on his majesty and mercy, his purity and his power, to see and savor the glory of God in the face of Christ until our hearts are profoundly persuaded that he, Jesus, really is all we need in every situation. That's joy. Focusing on Jesus, who he is, what he's done for us. He died for us on a, on a cross to take our place, to give us life forever, eternal with God, to make us right with God, to bring us into his family, to, to focus on the greatness of Jesus, to focus on his majesty, to focus on his beauty, his purity, his power, and all those things so much that we become convinced deep, deep down in our hearts that he's better. We can become convinced deep down in our hearts that Jesus is really all we need. If you take away everything else, I'll be okay because I still have everything. I have Jesus. That's, what, that's where joy comes from. That's what it looks like to rejoice, is to discipline our minds, to constantly think about Jesus and who he is rather than our temporary circumstances, problems, even the pleasures, all the stuff that's just going to fade, to go back to the rock, to go back to the truth. Jesus did this for us. We know that he loves us. We know we can trust him. And to think of those things, and it, it guides us through life with joy in spite of all the circumstances. That's what he's talking about when he says rejoice in the Lord. But he's just giving commands, one command after another as we build this recipe. And so the next one is be reasonable and gentle. Look at verse 5. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. That word is really gentleness. It's maybe the best translation, but, it, but it's kind of the same thing. It's, it's how we respond to the circumstances and situations that matters. I mean, he's, he's talked about that throughout this book. How we treat other people really, really matters. Consider their interests above your own. Consider them more significant than yourselves. 
He constantly comes back to look at how Jesus did this and then treat other people that way. And so he says, how you respond to your circumstances and how you respond to other people, it ought to be characterized by reasonableness and gentleness. That sounds kind of crazy, doesn't it? It sounds, sounds like, wow, that's way out there. I don't know, like, I don't see people doing it that way. Well, what if we did? What, what if we responded to our circumstances in a way that would be characterized with reason and gentleness? That is a reasonable response to that. Instead of the extremes that we're like, what if we woke up and chose that no matter what happened today, I'm going to let Jesus help me to respond in a reasonable way and in a gentle way. Because that's not what we normally do. We wake up and choose violence, right? <laughs> like whatever happens, like I'm going at them. And it sounds crazy. It sounds like too much. It sounds almost impossible. That's not the way we're wired. That's not the way we see things. Well, if I do that, if I'm just gentle when people are coming at me or whatever, like I'll just get walked on. I'll get stepped all over like maybe. Jesus said a few things about that, didn't he? Turn the other cheek, how you pray for your enemies, how you love them. So maybe. Well, if I, don't, if I don't fight back, my rights will be, like, taken away. Like, I, I, what I deserve, like, my rights will be trampled on. Like, who will defend me? <laughs> who said anybody's supposed to? Jesus is our example. What would it look like if we were a people characterized by reasonableness and gentleness it probably look look pretty different from most of us most of the time and that's what Paul is telling us to do he's not suggesting it he's commanding this is how you ought to relate this is how you ought to respond to your circumstances this is trust Jesus to do this in you ask him to help you ask him to help you tomorrow morning to get up and choose to be reasonable and gentle no matter what happens, and see if he does it. And if you thought that one was hard, buckle up. Because the next instruction, the next direction in the recipe is do not be anxious about anything. <laughs> Don't worry about anything. Anything. No category for worrying about stuff for Paul. Don't be anxious and don't worry about anything. That's not a suggestion. It's not just a, hey, this might be a good, no, it's a command. It's an imperative. It's the directions for the recipe. Don't worry about anything. Now, here's, here's the deal. I am fully aware that there is a level of anxiety that needs specific treatment. In our world, in our culture, our society today, there's a, there's, a, there's a level of anxiety that, like, it needs extra help. Uh, anxiety disorder, I, I believe that's a real thing. Like, I believe chemical imbalance, all that stuff. I, I know that, that that's out there, okay? But I'm not talking about that today because that's not what Paul is talking about. What Paul is talking about is our tendency to choose to worry and to stress about stuff instead of submitting it to God. And every single one of us has that tendency. Every single one of us has that struggle. That we see something happen, some circumstance develops that's beyond our control or it's not the way we wanted it to go, and we choose to stress out and worry about it. And man, this is a problem in our culture. It's a huge problem in our culture. It's a bigger problem in the last two years than it's ever been. It's a, it's a, it's a big time problem for us. 
And Paul is giving us another way. And he's saying, don't be anxious. Don't worry. And I think that why he says that is because what that anxiety, what that worry that he's talking about really means. It means that we're, we have a misplaced trust and a lack of trust. The misplaced trust is because we start thinking that if I'm stressed out about this, if I worry about it, if I get, get involved in this, that maybe I can fix it. Like we fool ourselves all the time thinking that, I, well, I just need to, I need to give it more attention and more time and I need to stress out a little bit. I, need, I mean, aren't you worried about that? Like I'm worried about that. Like, and we start thinking that we're the ones that are the solution to our problems. That's a misplaced trust. And the lack of trust is because we're misplacing our trust. We're not trusting God. This misplaced trust, the lack of trust, like if I start thinking that I've got to worry about this, I've got to stress about it, I've got to figure this out on my own, then all of a sudden I'm not looking to God for the answers. I'm not trusting him with my situation. I'm not looking to him with all of my circumstances, and I'm lacking trust in God. See, the solution for our anxiety and worry is a, is a promise that everything will be okay. I mean, if you had that promise, everything you're worried about will work itself out and it'll be good and be okay. If you had that, like you wouldn't worry. You wouldn't have a reason to be anxious. Your stress would just slide right out of there. But we don't have that promise from the world. All the situations, circumstances that we're faced all the time with, like we don't have a promise that comes to us that says everything's going to be fine from the world. The world's problems don't give that kind of solution. But we have that promise from one place, and that's God. He's the only one that can make that promise. He's the only one that can deliver on that promise. He has said it over and over and over again. All things work together for good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. In the end, we will worship him forever. No tears, he'll wipe away all the tears. No pain, no suffering, no disease, no sickness, nothing. Perfection for all of eternity. God promises that everything will work out in the end. And he's the only one that can make that promise. And so when we're worrying... We're taking it out of his hands. We're, we're not trusting with it. We've misplaced our trust and we're lacking trust. And so Paul says, stop. It doesn't work. Your, your worry, your anxiety, your stress, Jesus said, doesn't add one day to your life. Doesn't help one little bit. And Paul says, stop. Don't be anxious about anything. And if that was it, like, there, boy, there'd be no hope in that. But he gives an alternative. He gives the other side of it. Instead of worrying, here's what you can do. And look at what he says. Pray about everything. <laughs> and you knew I was going to say that, right? Like, I'm a preacher. That's what I'm supposed to say. Don't worry. Just pray about it. Sounds pretty trite, overused. <laughs> but have you ever tried it? And I know every now and then we try it. We got something that's spinning out of control, and so we finally come to Jesus with it. But I'm talking about trying it like Paul said it. Don't worry about anything. Pray about everything. Not many hands go up when we say, have you tried that way? Like every single circumstance in your life, you don't worry about it, you turn it into a prayer, because that's what he's saying. Every single thing, you just turn it into prayer and turn it over to God and cast your cares on him. We haven't tried that. That's not our tendency. We're always trying to figure it out on our own. Jesus is the last resort for too many of us, too many times for me. (laughs) 
He says pray about everything. He drives it home. He uses four different words for prayer just to make sure that we get that that is the solution to the worry. Instead of worrying, instead of stress, instead of being anxious, pray about it. He says prayer, that's the first word. That's just the general word in the Bible that means putting your needs before God. And then he goes another step to supplication, which is a word of submission. It's a word of saying, I can't do this. I need help, supplication. And then he uses the word thanksgiving. And that word basically is reminding us that we come to prayer with an attitude of gratitude. We come to him with thanksgiving in our heart. We don't come to him uh, like... Like somebody just has a bunch of needs. I need you to do this and this and this. Here's my, here's my wish list. We come to him with thanksgiving. Why? Because Jesus made it possible for God to listen to us. Jesus granted us access to God. We can approach the throne of grace with confidence because Jesus made a way where there was no way. So when I pray, I want to be thankful as I pray because Jesus made it possible for God to listen to me. And as I pray, I'm going to be thankful because God is a good father who loves to give good gifts to his children, and he's told us to pray. For some reason, he's decided in his sovereignty to work in response to our prayers. And so he listens and he responds because of Jesus and what he did. He's made that possible. And so I'm going to pray with thanksgiving. And then he says request, which is very specific. Put your request before God. Jesus said that to people when he was here on earth. Hey, what do you need? What do you want me to do for you? That's that's the God that we serve. What do you need? What do you want? I haven't heard it from you yet. You're working all this stuff. You're stressing so much. You're worried about so much. What do you need? Put your request before God. What if we tried that? What if we tried that? Like every worry, every stress, every anxiety, I'm a Take that thought captive and I'm going to turn it into a prayer and turn it over to God. I mean, when we're praying that way, we're acknowledging and confessing what we really need to acknowledge and confess. We're acknowledging that I can't do this on my own. I need help. I acknowledge that when I pray. And I'm confessing that God can. He can do this. He does listen. I can trust him. I really, really can trust him with everything going on in my life. He really does care that way for me. So when I pray instead of worry, I'm acknowledging I need help and God can help me. He's the only one who can. What if we did that? It would change a lot of things, but here's the thing that Paul promises us at the end of this recipe. You do this. Rejoice. and Be reasonable. and Don't be anxious. Instead, pray about everything. Here's the result. A peace that passes understanding. Look at verse 7. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. That's the promise. That's what comes out of the oven. Peace. And and don't don't misunderstand that. It's not some wimpy little feeling of peace. Peace, man. Like it's not, it's a strong peace. It's a peace that's guarding our hearts and our minds against the attacks of the enemy, against the negativity, against the worry, against the stress. It's it's like a sentinel guarding our heart and our mind with peace. It's strong. It gets you through anything. It's a peace that surpasses understanding. Guys, we need that peace. We need specifically that kind of peace. You know why? Because when we pray and we turn things over to God, he doesn't always answer them the way that we want him to answer them. When we pray and turn things over to God, sometimes he's way, way on a different timetable than we are. 
Sometimes he never does what we're wanting him to do at all. And when we pray, he gives us a peace that passes that understanding. It's greater than our need to understand what he's doing and why he's doing it. When we pray, what happens, it begins to change us before it ever changes our circumstances. And that's the kind of peace that he promises us. If you follow the recipe, here's the result that Jesus has made possible because of what he's done for us. The prophet Habakkuk, when he was in his ministry, in his prophecy time, he had, he had really nothing but questions for God. He didn't understand why God was doing what God was doing at all. He, he was frustrated. He, he might have been whining a little bit. Like he, he, didn't, he didn't understand. And he puts his questions before God. Why are you doing this? Why are you doing this? Why haven't you done this? And he puts them before God. And his answer is not what he was looking for. And his circumstances didn't change at all. But after he prayed and after he presented that to God, even though his circumstances didn't change, God had changed him. And at the end of Habakkuk, verse 17 and 18 of chapter 3, Habakkuk writes this, Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Everything's still going wrong. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Circumstances didn't change his perspective changed. His heart changed. And that was everything. Because in the middle of that change of perspective and his heart, he found joy. Because he knew that God was in control. He knew that God was good. He knew that God loved him despite what it looked like and the temporary things around him all the time. Guys, let's be that people. Let's be a people that trust Jesus so much and know he's so good that we... We present our request to him and we trust him and we find joy and peace no matter what's going on around us. And let's show how great our God is by how we respond in that way. Would you pray with me? God, I want to thank you for the truth and your word, the, the challenge that is in front of us today. Man, I needed that challenge. I needed that reminder And God, I'm so thankful that you have promised that you've given us everything we need to follow you this way, to obey you this way. And God, that's what I want to pray for all of us right now, that we, we will not just be hearers of this word, God, but we will be doers of it. We will, we will seek to put it into practice with your help, your power working through us, that we will follow you that way in obedience. And that God, as a result of that, that you'll do something that only you can do in our hearts and our lives, and you'll produce in us a peace that passes understanding. You'll produce in us a joy in spite of all the circumstances we may face. And God, I pray that you will look great as you do that, that you will make this body, this group of people, a shining light pointing the world to how great you are and how glorious you are as you lead us and work in us to accomplish your purposes. And we thank you for that in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.